Big love to the two Johnnies for keeping us entertained this afternoon. It is Wednesday, the 16th of November, and this is Game On. Coming up this evening, another historic day for Irish cricket. This time, it's a series win for the Ireland women in Pakistan. Johnny Sexton on being nominated for World Player of the Year at the ripe age of 37. We'll be rounding out the year in tennis with cross-court views Stephen Higgins. And we hear from the Irish Football Club that says the Qatar World Cup must be a turning point for diversity in the game. As always, if you want to get in touch, you can do so by texting us on 51552 or tweet us at GameOn2FM. Game On on 2FM. Yes, hello there, good evening. It is uh, great to have your company and thank you for joining us on this uh, Wednesday evening as we, I suppose, count down to the World Cup now. This weekend it all kick off, kicks off on uh, Sunday with Qatar, Ecuador, but... A story dominating the uh, the social media headlines anyway, uh, because so much controversy surrounding this World Cup. But in particular, uh, a Danish journalist who was confronted uh, in Qatar. I'm sure some of our, some of you uh, listening in may have already seen this clip. But for those who, who didn't, uh, just have a listen to this, because he was confronted. He had his permits. He had everything that he should have, as did his uh, camera operator as well. Uh, yet Qatari officials stopped him filming uh, on the side of a street. Så bliver udsat for en helt del kritik. Hvordan oplever du forholdene lige nu? Jamen, vi kan jo vise, hvordan forholdene er lige her, hvis vi drejer kameraet. We are live on Danish television. Og der kan I se, nu bliver vi, nu bliver vi stoppet med at filme, og det er forholdene her. Mister, you invited the whole world to the... You, you invited the whole world to come here. Why can't we film? It's a public place. This is the uh, accreditation. Okay. We can film anywhere we want. Okay. There are only, of course... for the Qatar. Qatar, you have Because the Qatar is... No, no, no. We don't need permit. Yeah. No, no, but, 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 no, but listen, but listen, but listen. But you can break the camera. You want to break the camera? Okay, you break the camera. Okay. So you're threatening us by, 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 by smashing the camera. So a World Cup shrouded in controversy not off to the best start. So that was the voice of Rasmus Tantolt, a Danish journalist, and he was uh, explaining the situation a little bit earlier today. He was speaking to Sky. It was quite uh, stressful. I mean, I didn't feel, uh, felt threatened at all, I mean, personally, but uh, I mean, our camera is safe. And of course, I covered uh, World Cups before and, you know, I don't know what I did expect, but I guess I didn't expect that doing a live in front of a roundabout, not in front of a migrant uh, labor camp or anything else controversial, it wouldn't be a problem. So, of course, I was uh, surprised. Uh, and, um, you know, we were sitting there with the security guards after the live for about 30 minutes. Uh, we I don't know if we were detained or if we just you know, had to sit and wait there with them. And after half an hour, the supervisor, he came and he looked at our accreditation and he said, well, you can film, there's no problem. So, I mean, maybe it's a kind of a misunderstanding, but to me, it also shows how Qatar is when there's not a World Cup going on. Because obviously, this is what those security guards has been told to do under normal circumstances. Now we have a World Cup going on and Maybe they have been told to behave in another way and maybe not all security guards in Doha, they got the message. Not a good look to say the least uh, so unfortunate un- unsavoury scenes uh, in Qatar closer to home though 
Kerry Football Club have been successful in their application to compete in the SSC Artricity League, bringing senior football to the kingdom in 2023. The club has been backed by former league player Billy Dennehy and American-based directors Stephen Conway and Brian Ainscoff. They will play in Tralee's Mount Hawk Park next season with the ground undergoing uh, current renovations to bring it up to a first division standard. The joint bid between the UK and Ireland to host Euro 2028 has been formally submitted to UEFA at a preliminary level. A proposed shortlist of 14 venues has been submitted, including Crow Park, the Viva Stadium and the unbuilt GEA Stadium Casement Park in Belfast. A final list of 10 stadiums will be submitted to UEFA in April 2023. The FEI, along with other governing bodies, issued a statement this afternoon welcoming uh, the combined effort between the two islands in attempting to host a tournament. Finally, in Gaelic games, Pat Gilroy, who managed the uh, Dublin senior footballers to All-Ireland glory in 2011, will be part of Desi Farrell's backroom team for next year. Reports in the last week had indicated that Gilroy, who subsequently managed the uh, Dublin hurlers in 2018, was being coaxed back in. His involvement for 2023 has now been confirmed elsewhere. Tony Brown will again link up with Liam Cal, uh, the former Waterford star, joining Cal's management team ticket in Tipperary. And of course, last night, uh, former Galway manager Kevin Walsh was confirmed as coach of the Cork senior footballer. So plenty of talent on the sidelines uh, across the board. However, speaking of plenty of talent, the Ireland women's cricketers have pulled off a massive upset by beating Pakistan in Lahore in the third and final T20 international by 34 runs, recording their first overseas series victory on a 2-1 scoreline. Ireland batted first and made 164 for four, with Gabby Lewis top scoring on 71 of just 46 deliveries, including 12 boundaries and Amy Hunter reaching 40. In reply, Pakistan were bowled out for 133, with captain Laura Delaney and Arlene Kelly both taking three wickets. It is also the first time that a men or women's Irish cricket team has won a series in the subcontinent. And I'm delighted to say that former Irish captain Isabel Joyce joins us on the line now to hopefully, Isabel, just put this all into perspective. Just how how big of an achievement is this? Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me on. Um, it's absolutely huge, not to overstate it. Um, it's actually the first time an Irish team, men or women, have travelled to Pakistan um, to play in a series. And Pakistan are a side we haven't turned over in a series. So to do it away from home the first time over there is just huge. Yeah, as, as someone who has captain Ireland in the past, as someone who has laid the foundations for these successes, someone who's devoted so much of their life to Irish cricket, I mean, what was the overriding emotion for yourself personally when you saw this unfold? Well, I, I promised myself I wouldn't be jealous of the girls when, when you know, I retired and, and they all went professional. and I, I wasn't, but I'm, I was jealous when they got to go to Pakistan. It's always a, been a place I wanted to go to. Um, so to, for them to go there and, uh, and and win a series, I'm just hugely proud of them. And I know that um, other players in the same boat as me will feel the exact same. Um, you know, it felt like we were fighting against the current a little bit for a long time because other countries were becoming professional and you just saw them pulling away um, and in terms of their skills and their ability to train and get stronger. Um, so the fact that Ireland have done it so soon after becoming a professional outfit shows just how far this team has to go and, and how good an investment it is by Cricket Ireland and by um, the sponsors and the energy. What will this 
do now in, in terms of going forward? Because I know any time Ireland in, in cricket have a big win, where I was like, well, what would this will do for the sport in terms of participation and everything else? But what will this do for, for the current group in terms of confidence and in terms of belief going forward? Well, they're a really young team. There's, you know, Mary Waldron is there. She's a former Ireland uh, footballer, actually, um, and she's kind of the the older heads. Uh, and then there's a couple of girls nearing thirty. But that top three that you mentioned, kind of Amy Hunter and Gabby Lewis, and then there's Orla Prendergast. They got in the top three, and uh, you know, Orla Prendergast is the all rounder. They're all twenty one, uh, nineteen, I think, or twenty one, twenty, and seventeen years old. So. Um, they're really, really young. They're already doing it on the big stage. So, you know, the sky's the limit. And they actually haven't really performed to the absolute best that they can yet, and what we've seen on kind of the domestic circuit. Um, so I think everyone's really excited. And now that they've they've done that away from home, they know that they can do it again. And, uh, you know, there's a World Cup coming up in South Africa in February where they play Pakistan. We haven't won a game at, at, at a World Cup because it's only the top 10 teams. So knowing that they can turn over Pakistan ahead of that will be huge for their confidence. I was reading a, an article in the Irish Times, actually, Nathan Johns, I think, um, wrote it, and he mentioned Ireland held on for a mo- monumental result that will reset expectations back home in, in advance of next February's World Cup that you just mentioned there as well. So, so what will the expectations be from both inside the camp and from those of us looking from the outside in now? It's funny, with the younger players, they, they have so much confidence without necessarily having you know, had the results yet, but now this group have both. So I think they'll, you know, they'll look to win at least one or two, but we saw recently with the men in, in Australia, they went, you know, from the Super, from, into the Super 12s, not being expected to get out of the group, and then they turned over England. So I think the Ireland women will think that they, it's their turn now to kind of mirror what the men have done in 2007 and 2011 and even this year. Um, and with it being such a young group, wins like this, they just, you know, they think the sky's the limit. They think they can do it again and again, and they can. Um, and the more that they play, I think they've shown the better that they get because, you know, they didn't do too well in the ODI series. That's the games that go all day. They played those before these T20 games, and they didn't win any of them against Pakistan, and they didn't really compete that closely. But T20 is where we've focused a lot um, in this country over the last five years, and that's the format that we've won in today. Um, so it just does show that match time and, and the more amount of time that can be put in on the field that these girls will deliver if, if you put the time and the effort in. You mentioned those defeats and, and yes, they, they were quite heavy defeats and I know kind of the focus is on the, the T20 side of the game but I mean that just shows how, how mentally strong and how fearless this group are and would you put that down to because they are such a young group? I would put it down to that but also because they do have experienced players in T20 like Laura Delaney, the captain, has over 100 caps so does Mary Waldron Shona Cavanagh who wasn't playing has over 100 caps as well and um, so they have the experience and the tactical awareness in T20 cricket and I think that was the difference in terms of coming into this um, series the T20 series whereas ODIs I mean I, I remember looking up uh, how many caps players had in 2020 in ODIs and it noted down loads of players as retiring because it had been so long since they'd played in ODI so they'd automatically been noted down as retired so that shows how little ODI cricket they've played. And if you don't play a format, you know you might as well ask a five-a-side player in soccer to play eleven-a-side and do just as well. Um, it, it you know really is that different. And Ireland are in this test are, are in this ODI championship now, and it's only the second series in that. And I think if they can mirror how they've done in T20s in the way that they have learned the, uh, tactically and been able to put together performances with bat ball 
and in the field. You know, it's going to take a couple of years, but they've shown that they are worth investing in and, uh, you know, that they'll hopefully get, you know, wins against the bigger nations in years to come. Long road ahead, but certainly seems like a positive road ahead. Is that the key now in terms of just getting games under the belts now and just continuing and, and building momentum? It is, and the, that future tours series is is really important for that, and that's what the men have, and we've seen how that's uh, worked for them. They you know, they nearly turned over New Zealand in the summer. They've beaten the likes of West Indies in South Africa very recently, and ODIs in, and England as well. Um, and I think that's what we'll see from the women. But it is going to take time. Um, and in the meantime, they're performing in T20. So, you know, they're getting rewards. They're getting kind of that confidence from winning games in one format while they still work on the other format. Have you been chatting to your brother Ed or any of the girls or anyone? Yeah, I, we have a little group, myself and Ed and my twin sister, Celia, and my other brother, Dom. We've a, it's, called, uh, it's it's just the, the four of us where we chat every now and then. We kind of commiserate if things aren't going well. It's generally just about the women's cricket team, actually. Um, but... <laughs> just ask how he's getting on if we feel like we can um, interrupt him or we leave him alone if we feel like he might be too frustrated but uh, there were lots of congratulations in our general family group today everyone's delighted um, for him winning and in some ways I think he's prouder of his coaching work than his own personal um, wins when he was a player he's, he's so invested in this group yeah, and it's stepping into a, a new challenge and a, and a new realm when you go from player to management as well. Like, like how difficult is that, I suppose, putting again into context for our listeners, like playing cricket in the subcontinent as a visiting team, acclimatising to the conditions and, and everything else that comes with it? It's really hard. And the thing for women in the, in, in the likes of Pakistan is, you know, the team wouldn't have been allowed to pretty much do anything. So if you can imagine being in, you know, a really interesting country that you'd like to explore and then you're confined to the hotel um, apart from playing and training. You get a bit of cabin cabin fever. Um, so I know they're looking forward to coming home. It was a great experience, but they didn't... You don't get to go out and experience the culture. You don't get to, you know, blow off steam by going out and enjoying yourself in any kind of way. Um, and that's a security issue. And actually, it's Pakistan in particular because they've only just opened up to having international teams over again after a really long time where teams wouldn't travel. Um, we're only the second team to travel there since 2009 um, so there's a really good bond between Ireland and Pakistan but with being women in particular and uh, you know with the security concerns in general it, it's an even more difficult um, you know place to travel than you would usually have um, and the conditions are very different so the heat like the length of time you're out there how that affects the ground how that affects the way you grip the ball all those kinds of things are things that a really young team had to grapple with and obviously came to terms with by the end. Was there any apprehension from, from even chatting to Ed or, or if you were chatting to any of the, the players themselves? Because I know there was a bit of a security concern um, before Ireland travelled, um, given a bit of political unrest and a former cricketer who's a politician over there as well, um, who actually suffered a, a gunshot wound as well. So was there any apprehension and, and I suppose overall frustration then as well that you're not able to go out and, and explore? Well, if there was apprehension, it wasn't voiced to me. Uh, you know, any time you travel away, you're you're nervous. But uh, it's it's not an unusual one with the female part being on on tour. So when you're in Bangladesh, not not India, but when you're when we were in Bangladesh before and in Pakistan, just with um, the orthodoxy there, there are different things that the women's teams have to take into account. And um, so it's not something they're not they're unused to. Um, but 
you know, it, it'd be really, really damaging for Pakistan for anything to happen to the girls. So I think they take comfort from knowing how invested Pakistan cricket are in their safety. Um, but also, they literally were in like, an amazing hotel and were not allowed to go anywhere. So I, I think they knew that was the case, so they weren't too worried. And uh, they're, you know, they're they're not a bunch that are going to sneak out of the hotel, so I don't think the management were too worried about them either. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, and, and Cricket Ireland did say they, they you know, liaise with all um, official parties and everyone, and that uh, incident surrounding um, Pakistan Prime Minister Imran Khan uh, was unrelated to, to, and I think it was a, a good few kilometres away uh, from where the series was as well. Um, just finally, on, on the cricketing side of things, what will be your main takeaway from what we have learned on the tour? What has excited you most? I think, you know, coming into a, a must-win game for the series and putting in the, the fearless performance that the batters did. I mean, Amy Hunter and Gabby Lewis up front with the bat were absolutely incredible. And that is something that we know about those two. But, you know, when you've come off the back of three losses in ODIs and then just lost the, the middle game, you might see players go into their shell. But it, it shows the confidence that the management built in the players, how they went out and played. Um, they know they have the backing of their management staff so I think that would be one thing and another will just be the, the messages that, that I've seen going around in you know, club WhatsApp groups and things from mums and daughters who all got up early to watch and the inspiration that a game like that and a win like that and in the manner that they did it will will give those girls that are you know dreaming of becoming professional cricketers and themselves going and winning series abroad in the future Absolutely Isabel Joyce, <coughs> excuse me, Isabel Joyce, thank you very much for taking the call. Former Ireland cricket captain. Um, what an historic achievement. Really is, uh, you know, can't be understated. Brilliant win uh, for the Irish women down uh, in Pakistan. We are going to be chatting soccer with uh, Jamie Farrelly, who is club secretary of the Dublin Devils, Ireland's largest LGBTQ plus inclusive football team as we continue our build-up to Qatar 2022. Game on. Football. Yeah, you're very welcome back to Game On. Thank you very much for spending your Wednesday evening with us here on 2FM as we turn our attention to football in Qatar 2022. And before we chat to Jamie Farrelly of the uh, Dublin Devils FC, I want to play a clip, um, unusual for us to play a clip of a, a comedian, but uh, comedian Joe Lysett has called out David Beckham in uh, Joe Lysett's typical satirical deadpan manner over uh, Beckham's role as an ambassador for the Qatar World Cup. This is a message to David Beckham. I consider you, along with Kim Woodburn and Monty Don, to be a gay icon. You were the first Premiership footballer to do shoots with gay magazines like Attitude, to speak openly about your gay fans, and you married a Spice Girl, which is the gayest thing a human being can do. But now it's 2022, and you've signed a reported £10 million deal with Qatar to be their ambassador during the FIFA World Cup. Qatar was voted as one of the worst places in the world to be gay. If you end your relationship with Qatar, I'll donate this 10 grand of my own money to charities that support queer people in football. However, if you do not, at midday next Sunday, I will throw this money into a shredder and stream it live on a website I've registered called benderslikebeckham.com. Not just the money, but also your status as a gay icon will be shredded. So that was uh, Joe Lysett, as I said, in his typical deadpan, satirical um, form of comedy. But Jamie Farrelly of the, the Dublin Devils uh, Football Club, 
I mean, yes, that is satirical, but there's a lot of truth and there's a lot of hypocrisy um, surrounding. Not, and this isn't an attack David Beckham segment. This is a wider discussion and wider issues uh, surrounding the World Cup. And I know you, as a club, have released uh, a statement um, basically hoping that this will be a turning point and, and hopefully that this can be a tournament um, that will instill more diversity. Would I be right in saying? Yeah, absolutely. We hope this is a turning point. Obviously, this World Cup is huge disappointing for a lot of reasons. But the, the fact is, we've known about it for a very long time. Um, the Qatar's motivations were always clear. They were never going to change their policies because of the World Cup. Uh, and I think it's really important now that everyone in the football community, that's fans, players, football authorities, reflect on the World Cup and the impact it's had and better LGBT inclusion in the future. So, as I mentioned there, so you're part of, of the Dublin Devils uh, Football Club, Ireland's largest LGBTQ plus inclusive uh, football club. And, you know, in that, you're, you're mentioning about wanting the football community to reflect on the impact of, of hosting a World Cup in a deeply homophobic country. And, you know, it was very powerful statements because the work that your club specifically have has have done and you know I've I've followed the work of it. Um you've played a couple of friendly matches in Tulka Park and so on. Um since being founded in, in two thousand and five and you're based in the Phoenix Park. Like how how much effort and, and work and dialogue has there been with the FAI uh, locally before we talk globally? Uh well I think anyone who knows the history of the FAI wouldn't be surprised to hear they haven't been particularly proactive on LGBT inclusion. Um, I don't want to just throw grenades at the FAI. We want to work constructively. So we have a document and it maps out a road to an inclusive FAI for gay people. And the truth is now we did approach them 18 months ago. We had a meeting and nothing has came from it. But we hope and we will be approaching the FAI in the next couple of weeks and looking for a new meeting, hoping that they will publicly commit to working towards LGBT inclusion. And there's a lot of things they can do. Um, For example, we'd like them, and we're inviting them now, to march with us to the Pride Parade. We'd like to see more rainbow flags at games and participate in the other campaigns, the rainbow laces, football, homophobia. But then we also need things like education for clubs, coaches, referees, uh, zero tolerance for homophobic bullying, uh, homophobic chanting that does happen in League of Ireland and we'd really love to see a dedicated FAI development officer for gay people because you know, the devils were going from strength to strength we're top of the league by the way uh, but there are other clubs, other LGBT clubs who are trying to grow and they really need support and you know, I think it's important to mention we, we don't have an FAI spokesperson here and, and hopefully there will be um, I suppose dialogue that, that is opened up and I know the FAI um, release a statement when I say we're speaking locally and then we go globally as well um, they released a statement on Tuesday that it has corresponded uh, with AMSI International Ireland ahead of the tournament and iterated the belief that football can be a positive force to highlight inequalities in society and should be a catalyst for real positive and sustainable societal change um, with Chief Executive Jonathan Hill adding the FEI supports the call for the protection and support of migrant workers and their families and for basic human rights for women and the LGBTQ plus community to be respected at all times. We trust that the significant media attention on the tournament in the coming days and weeks will do much to shine a light on these important issues and that football can reflect on the role it can play in affecting societal uh, change. And I know Stephen Kenny has has, has rode in positively with, with those remarks as well. I mean, that, that must be very heartening for you to hear those comments and, and those statements. 
Yeah, yeah, of course, it's good. And, you know, like we say, we're here to work constructively. But we do hope that the FAI act on that statement because LGBT inclusion is a long-term thing. You can't erase decades of exclusion with in a month with a couple of statements and some flags. You know, it needs commitment and needs leadership from the top. So would you be advocating a blanket ban on, on the tournament or would you be looking then for fans and, and particularly players to stand up and ensure their, their voices of protest are heard? I know I wouldn't be looking for a full boycott. I think it's a bit unfair to put that sort of moral burden onto football fans. Um, you know, at the end of the day, this is the flagship tournament. It's the best players in the world coming together. It's not the way I would like to. I don't think we'll move the dial on LGBT inclusion. Uh, I'll be watching the World Cup myself um, with less interest. I think the hype is just not there. And uh, I know some Dublin Devil players won't be watching. I think it's a personal choice. Um, I think fans sometimes think they can feel a bit powerless when it comes to influencing football given the huge amount of money in the game. But I think there are things that fans can do and it depends on their role in the game. Uh, if, if you're in a stadium, you hear homophobic chanting, you might question if you're tolerating this, if you're involved in a grassroots amateur club. You might look at the culture within the dressing room and ask, is this an environment where a player would feel comfortable coming out? Uh, it might just be a quiet word to your friends or your kids. Um, but most importantly is to recognise that gay people do have a place in football. Uh, don't think just because you know no fans are arrested this World Cup and the football was good, Messi put in a great performance and Argentina had a famous victory, that this World Cup was a success because it wasn't. And I would just ask fans to remember the issues that were highlighted. How big of a setback do you feel this tournament may be then for the progress made in, in recent times for inclusion and, in, and equality in football? So I'm not sure there has been a massive amount of progress. So in a way, this really has highlighted LGBT issues in football in a way we've never really seen before. Um, it's disappointing for gay fans. It kind of gives us memories of when discrimination was widespread across society. But I do think that a lot of people have woken up to the fact that football hasn't been very LGBT inclusive in the past. And I think, hope anyway, that the football community will take action after I know Louis Van Hal um, says supporters boycotting the World Cup in Qatar were, were right to do that, but hoped his Netherlands team would do enough to persuade fans at home to watch them on television. Like, do you feel? I know you mentioned some of your teammates won't be watching it. You will watch it. It mightn't be remembered in in for, for glowing uh, reasons. But like, will this be a World Cup that is overlooked in years to come because of the numerous controversies associated with it, or would you prefer that this is one of the World Cups that is is most memorable before the change that that it can? potentially offer yeah absolutely I hope it's remembered for the social change that that comes about after if that does happen and I hope it does I hope we look back and say this this has been a turning point can it though I mean like because I know there's a, a lot of restrictions and, and we have the, the 13 countries signed up to, to having the captain's armbands and we don't know if that's going to actually occur because I know you can't have individually designed armbands and in the USA you're using a rainbow branded crest Christian Pulisic saying that this should be the turning point like is there a, enough avenues to explore that, that this could reach a point of protest realistically that is powerful enough to make significant change well, I think significant change in football, not necessarily in the laws of, laws of Qatar. Um, on the players, um, now I don't expect every player to do this, but you've seen like the Harry Kane, the Bruno Fernandes, they made the statements, they said they're uncomfortable, they'll wear the, the armbands. And I think that is nice, don't get me wrong, it's good visibility. 
But um, more important than the statements or the colours is that the players go back to their clubs um, firstly set an example in their dressing rooms so the players feel comfortable coming out um, and the top players these days have a lot of power in the game more so than ever so they can they can put pressure on their clubs and their sponsors you know, to reach out to gay people in their communities and they themselves can commit to becoming long-term allies because we just don't want this issue being forgotten about as soon as the dust settles on the World Cup. Well, for players then coming back to their, their clubs, I suppose that's from a players' union and, and that brings you on to the head of the professional football players' union here in Ireland, Stephen McGuinness, who has noted that the legacy of the World Cup in Qatar should be the decriminalisation of homosexuality in that country. Mr McGuinness, who was in South America last week at FIFA Pro, an international players' union uh, gathering, told RT News that there is a feeling from the players that they want their voices to be heard. Like, I mean, in hearing that from, from a players' representative, I mean, that, again, is another positive step, but do you feel comments like that might be a bridge too far and might be hoping for too much to come from this? Yeah, I mean, I don't really want to comment about Qatar's decriminalising homosexuality in Qatar. That's not really for me to say. It's not something I've considered. Um, I'm mainly focused on what football can do and not really what Qatar can do. But I, I think it is good to see players in general like be a bit more socially conscious and perhaps then, I, I know we're, we're talking about football, but, but for sport as a whole, because I noted that Australian professional uh, basketballer Isaac Humphreys, who um, has said he is homosexual, making him the only openly gay man playing in a top-tier basketball competition. Uh, the 24-year-old who formerly played for the NBA's Atlanta Hawks is now contracted to Melbourne United uh, in Australia's National Basketball League. So perhaps this might be um, a stepping stone for, for other sporting um, individuals to 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 put their their support towards this from not only a footballing background yeah absolutely I hope it does happen I hope um, people in all sports players in all sports take inspiration from you know, players who are brave enough to come out but also we should should be reminded we have to respect that players should be able to come out making a big statement about it we shouldn't put a burden on players and expect them to you know, become LGBT ambassadors and they come out. Some some players will do that. Some players should be able to quietly come out. Um, but yeah, I think the past year we have seen, we've seen obviously Jake Daniels and Josh Carvalho come out. So more and more has happened. I expect to see more and more in the future. Absolutely. Here's hoping. Jamie Farrelly, thank you very much for taking the call. Really appreciate it. Jamie Farrelly, uh, club secretary and player of the Dublin Devils, uh, of course founded, as I mentioned, in 2005, based in the Phoenix Park, Ireland's largest LGBTQ plus inclusive football team, uh, competing at an 11-side football as well as a six-a-side and social teams club ethos is to provide a safe and welcoming place for LGBTQ plus people of all ages and ability to play football. Uh, Sticking with football, just before we take a quick ad break, we can hear from uh, Ireland manager Stephen Kenny ahead of the Republic of Ireland's friendly against Norway tomorrow which you can watch on RT2 television and you can hear live commentary over on RT Radio 1 Extra Stephen Kenny was chatting to RT Sports Dave Kelly Stephen um, first of all everybody fit and well for tomorrow yes everyone is, uh, that's come into camp is, uh, is fully fit we've no injuries uh, coming into the game tomorrow how have the last couple of days been for you because obviously um, you had a couple of players withdrawing on, on Monday but uh, having a full squad to choose from is obviously a nice luxury yeah I sort of knew Will Kane probably was not going to make it seeing him come off but we gave him the benefit he was having a scan we named him in the squad hence, you know pending the scan but he was definitely real but yeah it was a busy Monday because obviously we were training in the stadium and they uh, you know 
a high number, a huge number of supporters turned up, and it was really a uh, busy day. And then the players had the cap presentation and the player of the year on on Monday night. So the light training session yesterday, um, and uh, you know we train today and prepare for for Norway tomorrow. I know you were hoping Erling Haaland would be playing tomorrow night. How much does the game plan change now that he isn't? I don't think it changes that much really. You know, we have a lot of good players playing at, at a good level. You know, we have a lot of good players and um, obviously the highest prof- profile one is their, their captain, you know, Martin Odegaard, who's, who's an exceptional player for sure, for Arsenal. And, uh, but they have players playing in quite a few in the league and, and other top leagues. So, um, they're, they're, you know, they've shown themselves to be a good team. Can I just get a word? I know it's a long way off, but just in terms of the uh, the formal bid today going in for the Euros, uh, hosting the Euros jointly in 2028, and uh, what that could mean for the, for this country and for the FAI, it'd be a, a fantastic uh, occasion if it was to come to fruition. Yeah, you know, uh, I think it'd be very positive for football in Ireland and to have European Championships in Dublin and have stadiums and what that brings you know and the, the interest in the country and I think, I think I think it's a I think it's a good news story That was Stephen Kenny chatting to Dave Kelly still to come we're going to be talking rugby we'll hear from Johnny Sexton and Stephen Higgins from Cross Court View will be uh, rounding up the year that was in tennis stick with us here in Game On 2FM Game On Rugby now, the Republic of Ireland soccer team take on Norway tomorrow evening in the Aviva Stadium and the Irish rugby team round up their November uh, Autumn Internationals uh, against Australia in the same venue on Saturday. And we can hear from uh, Ireland captain Johnny Sexton who was chatting to RT Sports at uh, Michael Corcoran a little bit earlier on today. Game on. Rugby. Um, that n- nomination as a World Rugby Player of the Year is a short enough old list. Is that something that you kind of um, you, you take on board and park it and move on because it's a big game this weekend um, yeah like I said big game the most important thing for me this week is the performance against Australia the the you know the performance is the main thing the thing that you just focus on obviously you want to try and win the game but that's how you how you do it is performance and um yeah, all my focus is on that. Of course, it's it's nice to, to get the recognition like that, um, uh, especially at my age. Um, and it's uh, yeah, it is it is nice. I can't lie and say it's not. How have the last few days, the last week, in a bit gone? I've never had a dead leg. I would imagine it's kind of pretty sore. Were you in danger at any stage of of not being available for this week? Um, yeah, it was probably one that probably lingered longer than um, I've, I've ever had in the past in terms of, you know, it's normally a, a week jobby, but I unfortunately wasn't able to be involved last week and, uh, you know, some good work with the physios over the early part of this week and, uh, yeah, ready to go now, thankfully. So it's Australia this week, another Southern Hemisphere team. It'll be a different challenge compared to South Africa and New Zealand. They're all unique, aren't they? And they are all unique, yeah, and that's what we're preparing for. It's, uh, you know, Australia are a very different team to, you know, South Africa and Fiji that we faced, and, um, you know, they'll test us in different ways, and it's just about us uh, understanding that and being ready because, uh, you know, they've, they've had, obviously, a couple of poor results over the last couple of weeks, but we know how hard it is to go to France, and they, they're really, uh, you know, 
arguably they deserved to win that game and then uh, they made a lot of changes for Italy so I think the team that played France will be coming to us and they'll, they'll take some confidence from that uh, the fact that they had, I suppose won the game after 78 minutes they were I think barely behind in, in, in the game so it's uh, it'll be a uh, you know, a huge test for us, but one that we're looking forward to. And you will know, like most people will know, that you know, if you lose two matches in a row, how you can channel that inner hurt, anger, frustration into a performance. And that's what makes them pretty dangerous this coming weekend. Yeah, and they've got a like they've got an outstanding coaching team. They've got outstanding individuals. They're they're physical. They're a big team, and uh, you know, so they've, they've they've got everything. You know, so it's uh, it's just about us making sure we do the right. Uh, preparation for you know what we're going to face and then trying to get our best performance out there from our point of view and um, you know when we when we've done that in the past we've we've got a uh, good results uh, so we need to just take confidence from that and make sure that we do everything we can now um, between now and the game to, to get to, to dot every eye and, and make you know sure that we tick all the boxes in, in our prep if you look at the South Africa game on its own, I mean, that was kind of the new base camp, if you like, in terms of where you want to go and move on. Last week, maybe not so. It's kind of important that you've got to get back to that level of, uh, of a couple of weeks ago again this weekend. Well, even within the South Africa game, there was bits of our performance that we weren't quite uh, happy with, um, you know, in terms of even some of our execution of plays and... and uh, you know, reading the same thing. You know, a couple of passes that went to ground that um, shouldn't have. And uh, so there's there's lots in both games. It's not we're not pinpointing everything towards Fiji. Um, it's a good place to be because we, we were coming off the back of two wins. So um, you know, international rugby is about winning. And uh, but when it comes in on a Monday morning, we look at our performance. It's the result is is secondary. Just a final question. I mean, there was a, a time not so long ago when you were a younger man. You came into Ireland camp kind of for the first time. And, and saw those around you and you tried to kind of push your way through the kind of the queue or, or the system in terms of trying to get into a, a match day 23. In terms of Jack Crowley and what you've seen of him since he's come into camp, do you see kind of some similarities there? I know he's got his own, obviously, individuality and personality. No, he's been great. Uh, like, the most important thing when, you, when these young guys come in is you look at their personality as opposed to what they can do on the pitch. Of course, you're going to see what he can do on the pitch, but if they have the right attitude, if, they're, if they want to learn, and, and he, he's been doing that uh, brilliantly. Like, he's a sponge. He, he wants to, to ask questions, try and figure out how to, to get better, and that's always the thing you look out for. And, um, you know, if you can keep that drive within him and, and keep that when, you know, he keeps making these breakthroughs. You know, he's got the he, 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 what he does with his career is up to him. Like you know what I mean? Like he's yeah. got that that talent that, that uh, and he seems to have that work ethic as well. So um, once he can navigate through the ups and downs of, of being a ten and, and uh, not let the criticism get to him at different times, then then he'll be in in a good place and he's a big career ahead of him. So that was Johnny Sexton chatting to Michael Corcoran. Don't forget, you can follow a live blog of Ireland versus Australia on rt.e forward slash sport and the RTE News app this Saturday from 8pm at live radio commentary on RTE Radio 1. Still to come, we are going to be chatting tennis with Stephen Higgins from Cross Court View. So stick with us here on Game On 2FM. Game On. Gaelic Football. Now, I did promise tennis, but there is some breaking news coming from 
Donegal. GA because Donegal have just released a statement that reads it is with a certain degree of sorrow and regret that Donegal announced the retirement from inter-county football of Michael Murphy. Michael has been a fantastic leader and servant to the county for the 15 years since making his debut against Leitrim at the tender age of 18 in 2007. An exemplary captain for over a decade he has lifted the Anglo-Celt Cup on behalf of Donegal five times in Clonus and most memorably the Sam Maguire in 2012 in Crow Park regarded by many many people as Donegal's greatest ever player. He also captained the Ireland International Reels rules team and just uh, three all-star awards seems a scant measure of his colossal role in Gaelic football across three decades reads the statement outside the white lines Michael is a gentleman of the highest order always with time to speak with fans particularly the younger ones from a personal viewpoint of view as Donegal Pirro for the last four years he was a pleasure to, to deal with also freely happily and in some cases unobtrusively fulfilled any requests asked that full uh, statement is on the Donegal uh, website so we wish uh, Michael Murphy all the best in his retirement from inter-county Gaelic football Game on Tennis As promised Stephen Higgins from Cross Court View is with us now to chat all things tennis Stephen where shall we start I suppose the ATP finals Uh, and in a shock to no one Novak Djokovic is into his 11th semi-final at the event from 15 appearances. Yeah, Novak Djokovic indoors at the ATP finals is a force to be reckoned with. And Andrei Rublev felt all of that force today <laughs> as he lost 6-4, 6-1. Uh, Djokovic had already beaten Stefano Tsitsipas in the group and is now set to play in the semi-finals again. He is aiming to match Roger Federer's record of six ATP finals okay. uh, titles. On the other hand, Rafael Nadal, who's obviously the other, the third great of this era, is already out having lost his first two matches to Taylor Fritz and Felix Oje Aliassime. And interestingly, this is not Nadal's time of the year. In his entire career, he's only made 10 appearances at the ATP Finals. A lot of injuries have kept him out of it. He's only made two finals in those 10 appearances okay. and he's never won it. Interesting. So it was just on Djokovic. So good news for Djokovic on the court and some good news for uh, Djokovic off the court as well yeah it seems that we will not have all the fun and games of January when I was in here every 10 I'm disappointed keeping up yeah I'm, I'm a bit disappointed I won't lie what, what is Novak Djokovic looking at in his room <laughs> um, and the absolute kind of madness by the end of just how crazy it all went uh, where he was deported of course from Australia mm. he was set to be banned for a number of years for uh over that issue but that has been rescinded by the Australian government given the fact that in July they had relaxed the rules on unvaccinated travellers coming in and out of the country and you also had this weird situation even in America where he couldn't travel to America as an unvaccinated visitor but you had unvaccinated American players who were able to play in the tournament as well that it's not really a surprise given that while we're still somewhat in the pandemic a lot of the restrictions have been eased and I, probably for everyone concerned it's good to get this out of the way quite early that Djokovic is going to be there he'll have his visa he'll play it will be interesting to see what the response of the crowds are to him now he's a nine time champion there it's one of his best tournaments or it is his best Grand mm. Slam obviously but there was a lot of rancour last year about it because they had the harshest lockdowns at the time and you know there was a lot of debate about how Djokovic was trying to get into the Australian Open so that'll be interesting to see very much so. Uh, dubbed uh, Fortress Australia 
the country as you mentioned there Stephen had some of the strictest uh, pandemic restrictions in the world but uh, it was Immigration Minister Andrew Giles whose government only came to power in May who has overturned uh, the ban and uh, Djokovic will get uh, a visa there so yeah but as you mentioned uh, what will be what, what do you think the, the reaction of other fans will be like is this just it's, it seems like a world away now yeah it, it is what it is it kind of almost seems that it's such a different world uh, I think he is a popular champion down there anyway mm. I'm sure there'll be the odd boo and gesture from the uh, Aussie fans, but I wouldn't expect it to be like massively bitter. Okay, good stuff. Um, so the defeat for Rafael Nadal and then world number four Casper Rudd is into the last four after pulling off, pulling off some impressive wins, just rounding up the ATB finals. Basically here, I'm just, you know, filler busting for a way for you to chat about Carlos Alcaraz you know let's call a spade a spade here you know I'm just just gonna let you tee up I won't even ask you a question I know you love you know waxing lyrical about him so you may as well alas Alcaraz who was missing from the ATP final so we we missed out on that Uh, yeah I mean after an extraordinary season with uh, six titles or so his first Grand Slam at the US Open he's now confirmed as the youngest world number one in ATP history what, just an exceptional talent maybe towards the end of the season all that tennis and his breakthrough caught up with him a bit which is understandable he's still a teenager but so much promise going forward it's absolutely fascinating to see uh, with Djokovic now back able to compete in all the events whereas Nadal going to be Zverev you'd expect to be fit again somewhat early in the season you have then people like Kasper Ruud Felix mm. Oje Eliassime breaking through Holger Rune who if it wasn't for Alcaraz's ascent to the top Holger Rune is a top 10 player at 19 and beat Djokovic in the final of Paris like you know and is an exceptional talent by himself but yeah I finally got to see Carlos Alcaraz in Basel as the waiting to see and he is he is something to behold Mm. Uh, just an extraordinary all round player and as had been said early in the season and is true certainly when I watched him he is better at his age than the top three guys were at the same time like, okay. you know, he is a more complete player at 19 than they were at 19 yeah. whether he'll go on to win 20 majors like they did obviously we'll have to see but he is a better player at this age than they were ok well, um, well he's guaranteed now world number one for uh, for 2022 he won't be uh, moved off that post since uh, Nadal's uh, exit from the ATP finals but there's uh, just as much drama at the uh, or there was at the WTA finals yeah, well, it's great to see one of my favourites for years, Caroline Garcia, famously when she was 17 and she played Maria Sharapova at Roland Garros. Andy Murray tweeted that he thought this is a future world number one you're watching. Now, she did end up being world number one in doubles, but her singles career has kind of been an up and down trajectory. But she's really starting to fulfil her potential in the singles game. And she won the finals with a tight but straight sets win over Irina Savalenka. Iga Shiontek, who's obviously been the player of the season by miles, two grand slams, the world number one by quite a margin, won the group stage, won all three of her matches in the group stage fairly easily, but then was shocked by Savalenka in the semis. Now, Savalenka kind of can do that. She has so much power on her day. She can really blow you off the court. And she's had a horror of a season. She was leading in double faults for a lot of it, really struggling this year. But she's kind of found form just at the end. But Garcia actually did it. Sometimes she's had issues in the past with closing out matches. Her talent was never really in question. And she had a great run in the indoors just coming into the tournament. And it's just great to see just someone who's been around a long time, who's been trying to find her best tennis at the highest level 
And doing that, like, you know, even into our late 20s, uh, it's actually interesting. I was just looking at the top 10 from last year just to show you the change in the women's game that you had Ash Barty, who was obviously the year and number one, mm. retired. Arena Sabalenko was number two. She struggled this year, but she's back up to top five. So, Garbina Mugaruth was number three, has had a very difficult season. Karolina Pliskova was number four, has had a very difficult season. Barbora Krajikova was injured and is outside of top 10 as well. Obviously, you had the whole Emma Raducanu craze of last year and she's well beneath the top 10 so a lot of change and flux in the WTA but when you've people like Shantek and Anjabur and Daria Kazakina leading the change it's a very exciting time for it Absolutely a, a lot of though has had a difficult season has had a difficult season uh, has consistency been lacking across the board is that too, uh, too, of a, too much of a sweeping statement? Uh, I mean, everything is a case-by-case basis. It's still, you'd always hark back to, it's very challenging, the best of five versus best of three, in terms of, for the player who's challenging, beat Rafael Nadal over five sets at Roland Garros, mm. beat Novak Djokovic over five sets at Australia, in at Melbourne or Wimbledon. In the women's game, because it's all best of three sets, it's not like Iga Shondek is an extraordinary player. But if someone plays well for two sets and she's maybe 85%, yeah. it's much more doable. Like you see in the Masters events, the Masters series finals on the men's side used to be best of five sets, but they're all best of three now. Novak Djokovic lost to Holger Rune in Paris. Hol- Novak Djokovic is another king in Paris. I think he might have won it about seven times or so. Mm. But he can lose over three sets. You know, uh, Rafael Nadal obviously lost twice at the ATP finals, both best of three matches. Best of three at that level, when you're talking about people in the top 20 particularly, if they have two really good sets, they'll beat the best players. So on the women's tour, I think in some ways, you know, maybe people could say that's cop out because Serena had the same rules as well and she was so dominant. Yeah. That could be a fair argument. But I just think over best of three, obviously for a challenging player, they have a great chance. If they can get off to a good start in the first set and kind of maintain that level, you have a chance to beat the very best. Over the best of five, beating these guys, uh, taking three sets, like we've seen with Sitsipas, two sets up, Musetti, two sets up uh, against Nadal and people against Djokovic. Good luck with that. Like, you know, like <laughs> try win the three sets yeah, against yeah. them in majors. No, that is fair. That's very fair. Uh, Stephen Higgins of Cross Court View, thank you very, very much. Uh, I've cut you short by about 30 seconds because I want to end the show uh, with words from Michael Murphy because I read out the Donegal GA statement on his retirement, but there's a personal statement from Michael Murphy to which he says, to have the chance to combine a sport I love with the place I love for 20 years of my life is a privilege and honour for which I'm very grateful. But I always knew the day would come when this chapter of my life would have to close. Now that day has arrived. I still love Gaelic football and I still of Donegal. However, in the team, I'm proud to have captained to compete at the level which Donegal deserves requires the best I can give every day. I no longer feel I have the energy and capacity to reach the performance levels to give my best to Donegal. He goes on to uh, finish out the statement as well. The full statement is on the Donegal GA website, but uh, the final paragraph, he says, to my own family and my club can Glen Swilly GA, you've always been there for me through the highs and through the lows. It was you who made the sacrifices so that I, that I could follow my dream. My family and my club are at the centre of all my plans for the future. They deserve the best of me too. Maybe in the years ahead, I'll find new ways to offer something more to my home county. The words of uh, Michael Murphy, recently retired from inter-county football with Donegal GA. Big thanks uh, to Stephen Higgins for uh, chatting tennis. All our guests, to you, the listener, and to Laura Lee Davis and Ronan Lawler for ensuring uh, that this show ran smoothly. Better the Silva's up next on 2FM. Up after the news, so stay tuned.